What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Just Friends. As always, I'm your host, Mitchell Embry, and this week I had the pleasure of sitting down with my old friend, Miss Hannah Gribbins. I call Hannah an old friend. She's actually pretty young. I met her when she was 13. I was 19. And her father was starting a church. It was called the Life Song Community Church, and he was looking for some people who played music, and I was interested in playing music, and that kind of started this crazy experience that was very defining in the early part of my 20s and Hannah was there from the very beginning so it was interesting for us to talk about some of the experiences that we shared and share our different perspectives on those things it's been really cool to see some of the things that Hannah's been into recently and uh, some of the projects that she's got going on with her writing and she's honestly just a fun and genuinely interesting person and I had a blast talking with her She's got a lot of stuff going on right now. She's got her books, Whiskey on Vinyl and Arrows on Monsters, which we'll talk about in the podcast. While I'm plugging Hannah's stuff, I might as well go ahead and plug my stuff. Guys, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave me a review and a rating. Or wherever you're listening to the podcast, if you can leave me a rating and a review, that'd be awesome. And if it's really cool and super thoughtful, um, I might even be reaching out to you to ask you if you might be interested in being featured on the website, which would be super cool. And also, guys, if you really love what you're hearing and you really appreciate the show, be sure to check out the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Mitch Makes Podcasts. Or if you'd like, you can just head over to justfriendspod.com. There are tons of links for showing your support that take you straight to the Patreon page. So if you want to become a subscriber, check it out. It's really easy. And it would mean so much to me, guys. I would really appreciate it. Now sit back and relax. Prepare yourself for a wonderful conversation with our friend, the lovely Ms. Hannah Gribbins. So, Hannah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. This is exciting. Yeah, no problem. I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I've been trying to do a better job of picking guests who have other things going on in their life that I can plug. Okay. And the reason I like to do that is because I like to have about a post a day. Mm-hmm. And if I can just post what other people are making. Yeah. I don't have to, do, I don't <laughs> don't have have to, to worry do about anything. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Makes your job easy. So I'm sure that you have a bunch of stuff that you want to talk about. Yeah. But the usual flow of the podcast is we start with your past. Okay. And we kind of work our way till now. All right. Sounds good. So, have you always lived in Louisville, Kentucky? Yes. I was born in the South End, went to school in the South End for elementary school. Then I took a leap and I went to No Middle, Uh. which was, you know, like I was the rebellious one in my family because I went to an art school pretty much. And then it was in the East End. And then I was even more of a rebellion and I went to Atherton High School, which I don't even think my mamaw knew that was a school (laughs) when I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Atherton. Um, so I went to middle school and high school in the East End, the, you know, like artsy part of Louisville. And then I'm still here. Yeah. So, so where did you go to elementary school? I went to Stone Street. Stone Street. That's like the OG school of the South End. I feel like all my friends went there. My sister went there for two years. I went to Johnsontown over okay. off of Johnsontown Road. Yeah. Uh, but so many people that I know went to know. Oh, really? Yes, tons. Oh, wow. Uh, Casey went there, my friend Jake, Ryan. The girl whose podcast came out today, Kelsey, Mm -hmm. she went to know. Cool. Um, Did you have Miss Bird Whistle? 
No. Okay, so... Uh, you gotta remember, I'm a little younger than all your friends. Yeah, that's true. But no, I, I did not have... No. Apparently there was a bird there was a there was a bird there. <laughs> Apparently there was a teacher there for a few years who taught music who was named Miss Bird Whistle. No. I had no. Now mm. now, you know, because Noah was famous for not having walls. Right. Well they have walls now. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, is it? That was the whole point of going to know was like you didn't have walls. You were really cool. But yeah, no, I did not have no. But No was known like as an artsy school. Yeah. That's what Kelsey said too. Right. So what what was your motivation for wanting to go there? So it was choir. Mm-hmm. Well, originally, so for when I was younger, I wanted to be either a singer or I wanted to be an artist because my dad's like all into art. And so and so is Seth, who's my cousin, who I call my brother. And that's complicated. But I'm trying to get Seth on the show, honestly, actually. Yeah, I saw that. He would be. Really, yeah, you should. Wouldn't it be great? Yeah, it I would agree. Be. But um, so I went to know wanting to either be an art or choir and then choir just stuck. I was more passionate about singing anyway. So then I was in choir for three years. And then whenever I left, like graduated, every, it was either manual Ballard or Atherton. And if you went to manual for music, like it had to be your entire life. You weren't going to have anything else to do. And I was like, I don't know if I'm really like that set on it. Like I kind of like having friends was kind of the like stereotype of manual at the time. And so then I Ballard wasn't really an option. I didn't have many friends going. And then it was like Atherton's fun. Like you get to be music like musically inclined and stuff, but it's also like fun and silly and it's a good school. It's the most diverse high school at that time in Kentucky when I went. So That is cool. Yeah. When I was in high school, Atherton was pretty much known for just having abysmal sports. It still is. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Yeah. We were not a sports team, like sports school at all. Right. At all. And the Soccer, school that, that was good. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And the school I went to, I think, was sort of known as a sports school, especially for a public school. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you were at Atherton all four years, right? Yes. So what were you, were you guys, the Atherton? Rebels. Rebels. <laughs> That's so fitting to the story. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> And what was your experience like there? Did you have fun? I did. I had a pretty good high school experience. It was pretty normal. Um, I mean, I had some other stuff going on with myself, like mental health wise, that kind of kept me from having like the grandest of grand high school experiences. I wouldn't say I would go back. Like, I don't think of high school as the greatest four years of my life or anything, but it wasn't like terrible that I like look back at it and like loathe or anything. So how old were you when we met? I was like 13. I think I was 19. Yeah. That's a significant difference for a six-year span. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So you were a freshman? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. And I think I was a freshman in college. Yeah, I think that's right. So that's about about the time that you started going to Atherton is about the same time that we met. Mm -hmm. And that was because your dad was at, like, right around the time James started to want to, like, create the life song. Yes. Or that had been the thing that it was way before then, I think, too. No, my dad became so my dad pretty much became a pastor and then started the life song. Okay. So there was no like <laughs> time to breathe in between those two times. So I was like 13 when he was ordained and then I started high school and then he started building the life song. So that was And what did you think about all that? What was your experience? Um it was it was interesting. I think it's more because a lot of pastors' kids are young when their dad becomes a pastor. Like, they're either born into it or they're really little. 
but I was 13. So like I had somewhat of a sense of identity and who I was. And then it was like, oh, I have a new quote unquote preacher's daughter title that I didn't really know what that meant. I mean, I knew the stereotypes of it, but, um, but two, it was hard because when you start a church, when you start an organization, like you have to be very welcoming and like, let everyone know that you're available to them where I am like, textbook social introvert so like I love talking to people I like being with others but when I'm done I'm gonna go home and I'm not gonna talk to anybody for a long time you know at least till the next morning so we always had people at our house because you need to show people that like you're there and that you're um, welcoming to them and always available so I just remember there were a lot of people over the house all the time like I would literally go in my room and like blast music just to like breathe and like not have to talk to people and so that was kind of my first like okay like is this forever like this is (laughs) this is gonna be the rest of my life is it and it got better but that was just like my first memory of just being like felt like suffocating with people but plus you're a you're a 13 year old high school kid it's hard to really think about your life beyond that right so i bet it did feel like forever Yeah. yeah it did yeah so it was well, and two, again, like I had my own issues that were not helping the situation. So that didn't add to it. Do you want to talk about those things? Yeah, you feel we comfortable? can. Where do you think, um, I mean, I think everybody has a little bit of of that kind of stuff going on in their life. Yeah. With like mental health issues and just right. challenges about, you know, how you think and what you choose to think about. Where did that start with you? So I was 10 when I had my first anxiety attack and it was like pretty traumatic my mom and dad were um they put me in a traditional school because I was not good at school when I was younger so they were afraid like middle school wise I was gonna have a hard time getting into a good school so they put me into a traditional school for my fifth grade year and I just had like full-blown anxiety like crying in the middle of the classroom like big panic attacks and that actually triggered like my first thought of suicide at 10 and so then you know, got the help I needed. They just took me out of school and it was fine. And then when I was 12, um, I kind of went through like, I call it a phase because it was like the emo phase. Like it was really cool to like wear like dark makeup and be like rebellious. And that's when I started cutting because I didn't fit in and I didn't fit in because I purposely made it hard to fit in because I would wear like really extreme clothes and stuff. So then got help for that. That was pretty like a phase I call it. But then when I was 14, which is right around, you know, when the life song started, I just had no self-esteem. Um, all my friends were like getting like, that's when you get attention from boys and everything. And I just never felt like that was the case. Um, I had no sense of like pride in who I was. So that's when I started cutting again. And that was like full blown, like cutting every day. I mean, I would cut and then like do like get hairspray and like spray it in the cuts, like make it hurt worse. Then I started abusing pills And this is all in the middle of like the first year of the life song. So and like that was a secret from my parents for like six months. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot going on that year. I feel like I started having anxiety and having anxiety attacks for the first time at a similar in a similar situation as you. I had transitioned schools. Yeah. But um, actually, no, I hadn't transitioned schools. I had transitioned classes. I was in Mm -hmm. honors classes, sixth grade. And I had made a group of friends that I knew. And I, I, you know, like you're ready for a big transition in sixth grade. Right. But then in seventh grade, I took the advanced placement test and I got moved into a total different group of kids. In seventh grade, like I had 
full-on anxiety attacks every morning before going to school. Right. I'd cry in my car. I was like, Mom, please don't make me come here. Do you think that that w- sort of started just primarily because all of a sudden you're dropped in this brand new place you'd never been in before? Yes, for sure. It was also a traditional school. So like everyone had to dress the same. Like I mix matched my socks until I was like 20 and like, I wasn't allowed to mix match my socks anymore. You know, like, and, um, I just like, it was a much bigger school. And then on top of it, I felt like the curriculum, it was like the first week of just, Oh, we're just seeing where you're at. And I was like, I'm not here. Like I'm, I felt so far behind and um, I just never was like, I'm never going to catch up. I don't belong here. And then it just felt like so heavy and it felt like everyone was staring at me, which everyone was. I was like crying in the middle of the classroom. And so I think it was just I had a lot of I felt a lot of expectations that I needed to meet and I wasn't meeting them. And I was like, this is my fault. Like, what am I supposed to do? So that kind of started the anxiety of like not being good enough mm-hmm. or just failing in front of people. So, yeah. And you think it was that same type of feeling carried on throughout the rest of the story? Do you think it all started right there? It's like the foundation? Yeah. Yeah. I think when I think back about those experiences in my life, I was just terrified of getting outside of my safe place. I built like a safe place where Mm -hmm. I felt comfortable. And I just did not have the tools that I needed to experiment with being vulnerable. Yeah. For sure. And so, um, I don't know, it also followed me throughout my life and and expressed itself in different phases. Mm -hmm. So you said it really became a challenge again in when you were around 12, so like middle school age. Yeah. And that was the first time like it manifested itself where you were actually like harming yourself with self-harm. It was just kind of. It was that actually was more of a depression, I think, which anxiety and depression go hand in hand. I think that's a lot of people don't understand that. But it was more just what am I supposed to do? Like, how am I supposed to make friends? Is this my fault that I'm not making friends? It was also kind of like the cool, like people that dress kind of emo had that stereotype anyway of self-harm. So I was like, oh, well, let's just see if it does anything. I remember I watched this movie. It's on Lifetime called 13. And it's, like, about this girl who's about the same age, she's 13, and she, like, was, like, into drugs and everything, and she cut. And I remember thinking, like, oh, I wonder, like, if that would help me the same way it helped this fictional character in a movie. So then I did it a couple times, and it was more, like, experimental than it was anything. Like, it was, like, what does this emotion do for me? Does it do anything? And then I was caught. So I didn't really get to, like, have a full experience with it. But then... When I was 14, that's when I was like, no, like this is something I enjoy in a way because there's so much going on in my head. Like, let's put all the pain in one place on my arm, call it a day. And there is an adrenaline rush that comes with it. So then I was just doing it at one point when I was bored because it was just something to do. It was something to feel. So like, let's just do it real quick and get on with the day. And then it eventually just, I was tired of hiding it. So I was like, I'm tired of wearing long sleeves and like long pants. So let's start figuring out other ways to feel pain. And that's when I started abusing Tylenol. And I was taking like 20 a day, like headed down to a science. Like I'm going to eat it this time and then take this many so I don't throw them up. I'm going to, you know, when I go to sleep, take this many. Like Tylenol hurts my stomach. Advil hurts my head. Like I kind of had it down to where. And then one night. I don't even know, like, if it was suicide. I don't know what it was, but I just remember taking a whole bunch and just thinking, like, I'm done. 
And then, like, I have such a cloudy memory of it that I'm like, was that a suicide attempt? Was it not? Like, I know that I had thoughts of suicide since I was 10 from my anxiety attack. But um, but then I, like, took 20 and I literally woke up the next day like nothing had happened. And because when I hear you say, talk about the way you were using self-harm. Yeah. Like, you answered my original question, which, where did the idea come from? Mm-hmm. And then I think you also did a good job of explaining... My next question, which would be now as a 26 year old woman, 25, yeah, 25 year old woman, looking back on yourself as a 13 year old, what were you seeking when you were doing that? Was it a cry for help in the sense that you wanted someone to pay attention to you or was were you actually like medicating in a way by trying to create, well, you were trying to force your body to release these chemicals in your brain that would make you feel good or make you feel something. Yes. Dopamine, serotonin, all right. that stuff. Yes. So it, it was definitely, it wasn't really a cry for help. A couple of my friends knew mostly cause they saw it and that was just the reality, but they were young too. Like they didn't know how to go about that. Um, but it was definitely like figuring out how to just get back to normal was what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having a normal balance. And now that I'm 25, I mean, I found out six months ago, not even six months ago that, um, back in March that like I have a d- serotonin deficiency and like I was diagnosed with general anxiety and it triggers obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a whole other conversation of how that started. So looking back, it was definitely me trying to regulate mm-hmm. some type of emotion and get back to normal. Right. And then so to hear you say that that then transitioned because it, it just wasn't working for you at that right. point. Like you said, you couldn't hide it. Yeah. You, and you wanted to be. You wanted to be able to continue to medicate, but you wanted to be able to hide it. Yes. So you transitioned to abusing Tylenol and like ibuprofen, like ibuprofen and stuff like that. What? How did that make you feel? Um, like physically, it was just more pain. I mean, yeah. And it was kind of. It also was uh, like I don't want to say it was cool, but it was like I'm abusing drugs. Like that was legitimately mm-hmm. what I was doing. In the head of a tw- like 14 year old kid. Yeah. Yeah, like that was kind of how it felt. So, um. It was, and it was another kind of like secret. Like I remember being in Kroger and telling mom like, oh yeah, like I looked in the cabinet, I had a headache and we were out of Tylenol. Uh-huh. And she's like, oh, okay, well then, you know, we need some. And I was like, yes, we do. I'll take that. Thank you. You uh-huh. know, like she had no idea. And um, that was just, it just felt back to normal. It felt like cutting. Mm. Do you think it was more about control even maybe yes okay i think it was it was control it was feeling some type of emotion of like normalcy getting something out of my body focusing on pain alone too like it was like oh i don't need to focus on how like all my friends are getting attention from boys i'll just focus on the fact like my stomach is killing me Mm -hmm. so it was a distraction it was you know it kind of was everything at that point that's interesting because you were using those pills not to get a buzz or like to create any type of like high, but just to cause yourself physical pain so that you could be a distraction. Yeah. That's not something that I'm really super familiar with. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think often that type of behavior manifests itself in young girls more often than it does in young men. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if I ever had thoughts like that. Yeah. To where like I, where I saw self-harm as like a way out, but 
Um, I think through meeting you and then through hearing about it's interesting what that your dad talked about this today because yeah. I was planning on talking about it with you, but hearing about like organizations like to write love on her arms yeah. and how they've really invested in trying to help young women. Mm-hmm. Sp- I, I think primarily young women who yes. are having those experiences, yeah. right? Cause strike love on arms started with a girl, Renee, who pretty much she was abusing drugs, but also self-harming. And Jamie uh, Twerkowski met her and was like, I have to help you. He paid, I think he paid for her rehab, like took her in full blown and wrote her story out just on a blog. And then that grew to write love on her arms, which it came out just a couple years before I started dealing with it. And so whenever I learned about them, I was like all in, I did multiple projects. Like I remember in middle school, like doing projects about their organization. And I met Jamie at a speaking once and it was just been a really good organization for me to just be reminded that like there are people who are helping others and like you don't have to be a therapist to make a difference, you know, just telling your stories enough. And um, yeah, Trite Love on Arms is a big part of my life that I've submitted um, things to their blog. None of it's been published, but it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's <laughs> the thought. Um, but they're just a really open organization. And I think too, like they help every religion, every culture, like they're there. It doesn't matter like what you look like or what your background is. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, self-harm, drug addiction, um, anorexia, anything like that, like they want to help you. So, yeah. Yeah. I can't, I became interested in this topic. Um, just kind of thinking about my own challenges with mental illness and then my parents as well. And I read a book called Lost Connections by a man named Johan Hari, which I think I've talked about on the podcast before. Um, and I was reading a bunch of literature at the time. I read another book called, uh, oh gosh, I think it was called The Happiness Hypothesis. But basically, they 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 all kind of agreed that anxiety and depression are connected, like you were saying, and that they're a result of despair. Like, people get anxious in situations where they feel like they have no escape from a situation. Right, yeah. They're desperate. Mm-hmm. People get depressed when they feel like this is kind of the same thing, but on a different scale scale where it's less about fear, it's more about just submitting and giving up. So like if you see a person who's lost a loved one and they're depressed because they've given up ever being able to see that loved one again, that's a normal way to feel. Right. But if you have those same exact feelings and no one around you who you loved has passed away recently. Now all of a sudden you're anxious or depressed, but in reality you're just responding no- the way humans normally respond to feelings of despair and, yeah. and feeling like you have no control over your life. Right. I think it's more like, I think people think like anxiety and depression are just like things that you either struggle with or you don't. You know, and the reality is like they're natural feelings, but it's when there's cases like me where I've felt anxious my entire life because my brain literally does not produce enough serotonin. So that's the difference between, you know, you have the right to be depressed when someone dies that you love. You have the right to be anxious when you start a new job. You know, I think there's just this idea that like you either are or you aren't. And the reality is like, no, like it's universal. We're all going to feel those. It's when they become crippling is when it becomes a disorder. And then you also have certain individuals like yourself who just naturally exist in a state where they need um, some type of supplement in order to have the appropriate chem- biochemical levels yeah, in their brain. Right. Yeah. And so like some people might be depressed because their diet's crap and they like 
are not getting enough physical exercise and because they're constantly allowing themselves to think about things that make them sad. But then there are also some people who are just depressed and can't do anything about it no matter what. So it's all so subtle and so challenging that oftentimes people get bogged down in just the stigma of being depressed. And then sometimes I've had legitimate conversations with friends of mine who are exhibiting symptoms that I can clearly identify from experience as this person is depressed. Right. And they have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. They have no clue. That's, yeah. I mean, it's hard to, because you want to help, but at the same time, like you say that depression word, you say that, you know, the therapy word, like I love, you know, that's become such a scary word. I think more for our generation, it's more open and more welcoming, but same as therapy. Like some people are like, no, I don't need to see a therapist. I'm fine. It's like, it's so nice to sit in front of someone and just like dump emotions on them. And they kind of can look at this hot mess and go, okay, well this is maybe this is why this is like this. And maybe you're like this, you know, I've been therapy since I was 12. So I'm like pro therapy. And even my friends who are like, well, I just am struggling. I'm like, go to therapy. Like you can get it cheap now. It's going to be okay. But even you don't have to go up forever, like because they look at me and they're like, Hannah, you've been in therapy your entire life. I'm like, yes, but that doesn't mean you have to be in therapy your entire life. Like I choose to be and it helps me. So I think therapy is the same kind of stigma as depression and anxiety of people running from it. Yeah, I'm a huge hypocrite because <laughs> I'm a, a massive, massive proponent of therapy, mm-hmm. but I've never actually pursued therapy. Yeah. And I should and I want to, and oftentimes the reason I choose not to is not because there's a stigma behind it, but because I know what they're going to tell me. But you may not. And I don't want to hear it, though. <laughs> I know. I don't want to hear it. I get it, yeah. Like, you know, and so, but like, because once I have somebody there to tell me, then I also have someone there to hold me accountable. accountable. Yeah. And then I have to grow. Yeah. And that sucks. But I'll, but But at the same time, like... That's a crap excuse. So, it is. Yeah, it well, is. Well, and two, I mean, like, so my therapist, her name's Heather. I've been to her since I was 14, so 11 years, which is crazy. She's my paid best friend. That's literally <laughs> what my family calls her. And she, it's funny how there'll be situations where now I'll mention something. And she's like, wait, how did you handle that? And I'll, like, tell her how I handled it. And she's like, Hannah, I've been waiting you, like, waiting for you to do that since you were 14. And I'm like, you know, 10 years isn't bad. Like, it just took me 10 years to do it. But I think, you know, your therapist doesn't expect you to change by the next session. And I think that's kind of also like an idea of therapy. Like, you know, that's not the case. But yeah, she straight up was like, oh, 10 years and you finally did it. I'm like, oh, I'm getting coffee after this because I deserve it. Good for you. I'm proud of you. Thank you. I have. uh, We went to see a marriage therapist before Mm -hmm. Sarah and I got married. And that was beneficial. Yeah. You're right. Just having someone who you can, who you trust, who can give you a second opinion on your perceptions of your experience and can talk you down out of your, out of your headspace and into a more mindful space where you're paying attention to everything that's actually happening and making rational decisions based off of that's super valuable. Um, I have my wife. She does that for me a lot. Well, yeah. yeah At the thing. same time. <laughs> yeah, poor thing. Yeah, I know. She exactly. May, she may want you to go, you know, dump that on someone else every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, no, that's great, though. And 
I, we talk about mental health on here a lot. And yeah. I would encourage anybody who is struggling, who just, um, who's fallen out of these normal patterns, you're behaving in a way that's just, you don't recognize yourself. Or if there are other people out there who are listening who recognize yeah. those behavior, there are places you can go to find this stuff out. You can, there are things you can Google, yeah. check that stuff out. So for you, um, I imagine there were a lot of breakthroughs and I, I, I imagine you, there, you can't really say, you know, I'm done with that period of your life. Yeah. But I imagine there was eventually a change yes. where, where you shifted your focus towards some, something else. Yeah. So, well, I grew up singing. That was always a big part of me. When I was like 10, I was convincing everyone I was going to live in a box in Nashville and sing on the side of the road and become famous. So whenever I, you know, went through therapy, it was like, oh, I'm going to manifest these emotions in writing songs and in singing. And that was good. It was helpful. It was important for me. Um, and that helped me kind of just instead of like putting all the pain on my wrist, it was I'm going to put pain on paper and write it out. And that was a good, helpful thing. It also just was more, I had other things, you know, my therapist was teaching me ways to process emotions and to think things through. So whenever someone would make me mad or I was upset, it was like, okay, well, we're not just going to self-harm. Like, let's meditate on these emotions and let's write them out. Let's talk to my mom about it. Let's talk to dad about it. And that kind of built kind of the shift of where I am now, which is like self-harm isn't even an option for me. And the reality is, like, I will always struggle with self-harm. Like, I have a tattoo that says not today as a reminder. Like, I'm not self-harming today. And I haven't done it. Has it been a thought? Absolutely. But I know the damage that it put me through when I was 14 to stop and say, we're not going down that road again. And I think just maturing was definitely a big part of it and just opening my eyes to the fact that, like, there are other things that can help me get through this. It was also like self-worth in church and self-worth in like Christianity of knowing like God created this massive earth and he was like, yo, it needs you in it. And he put me in it. And like, that is worth in itself. Um, and I think that just kind of helped me focus on the good and not the bad of how I was feeling. So it's, it's so interesting to me the way that you're, talking about self-harm and I don't want to like I don't know the word interesting almost implies positive something positive yeah so I don't mean it interesting in like a positive way but right the way that you talk about it is so reminiscent to me of how people who are addicts mm-hmm. talk about their addictions yeah so it's almost like you're addicted to harming yourself and you have oh, to work sure. every day mm-hmm. in order to keep yourself from doing it yeah. falling back into old patterns of behavior, old ways of thinking that you already have identified as leading to a negative place. Yes. Yeah, because, I mean, like I said, it was a way of medicating. So it's the same as people who do drugs. Like, it's to medicate their feelings. So it became an addiction. Like I said, it was an adrenaline rush when I self-harmed. So that, you can get addicted to that feeling. And looking at it, I totally understand how I got addicted. But as an adult, I totally understand how getting into that addiction again can lead me down the road of at like no end, especially cause now like I live on my own. So, you know, before going through recovery, like I wasn't allowed to be at home by myself for months. I like, there were no scissors in the house. There was no razors in the house. Um, we took all the like medicine out and I was like, that helped me. Like there was no option for it, but now like I'm an adult, so I could be at 
my apartment and be like, well, no one's around. I can do it. But I know that it's just going to be worse, you know, to deal with it. And it's going to lead me down another path that's not worth it. So I, I think there's a great transition in something you just mentioned, which is through therapy, you started to learn to express your emotions um, through creativity. And that manifested itself mostly in writing music, writing lyrics. Um, so something I know about you now is that you're very passionate about poetry and about literature. Yes. Did that start with um, this realization that you could express yourself in that way through therapy? Yes. So um, my first, well, I went, so I went to IUS for literature. Um, well, yeah, IUS does this weird thing where they separate your English degrees where you're either a writer writing concentration or a literature concentration or you could be both which means you like double up on classes well I was both because I loved both and I liked for me it was like let's let go of the stream of being a famous singer and like let's see about writing and just you know your lyrics are pretty good let's move forward and then as I was reading literature I was really inspired by like the short stories I was reading so I was like oh let's work on maybe we can write a short story let's see well, um, when my grandfather passed away, um, he had Alzheimer's disease for like 10 years. And I wrote a short story that's about a man that has Alzheimer's disease where part of his um, identity, his self, is literally waiting outside of purgatory. And he's looking down on himself that doesn't remember anything. And writing that was kind of helping me get through my grandfather's death. Like it was kind of this idea of, yes, he didn't know you when he died because of Alzheimer's disease, but like he knows you now and he didn't want you to remember him as the one who couldn't eat his food, couldn't digest food or speak. So that helped me really like process his death. And then that turned into that actually won um, a creative writing award on campus and it was published on campus. And so then I was like, Oh, I can, I can kind of do this. And then um, Rupi Kaur, you know, Milk and Honey became really, really popular. And it was kind of like the Instagram poetry was like everywhere, which is essentially like one liners that make you go, oh, yeah, or you can relate to. So I started messing with that. And um, the reality is a guy broke my heart and I was either going to key his car or write a book of poetry about it. So <laughs> I started writing just a bunch of poems and I looked up a couple months later and I had like 60 70 poems and I was like you know I'm really proud of this I'm gonna self-publish it and we're gonna see if it goes anywhere it, if it sits on a shelf it sits on a shelf I did it and that actually turned into two separate books of poetry because I was just going and going and going and getting out these emotions you know I wasn't self-harming I was writing and eventually um I self-published them and they sell like on a website, like a website that I created also at my job. It's a local store. So my boss was like, heck yeah, I'll put it on the shelf. We'll sell it. I mean, am I going to get famous from it? Absolutely not. But it's something so like exciting for me to look at. It's so um, just self-fulfilling to know like my name is on something and I'm really proud of it. And I went on the news and like read a couple pieces. I've been to ratings and now I've matured into even more like lyrical pieces, not just like short one liners, like Instagram poetry. It's more of big old long stanza writing. And um, it's become like something that I believe that I have the ability to maybe go on and do something with it. OK, so was your first book of poetry that was published Whiskey on Vinyl? Yes. OK. And when did that come out? 
That came out 2018, uh, June 2018. So you had been, so did you go straight to IUS from Atherton? No, I graduated Atherton and I went to JCTC. And when I say I like farted around, I had, I mean, it was so bad. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I took a gap semester after two years because I was like, I am, I, I have credits that are garbage. Like, and I was really, did not really wasn't passionate about school either. So the grades, like my GPA was crap too. Um, but then after my gap year was kind of when I started writing and I was like, oh, this is fun. So I went to IUS and um, I loved IUS, like thrived, graduated top of my class. I'm going to show off because I like killed it at IUS. I felt so good. And then uh, Whiskey on Vinyl came out. Nice. Yeah. So you wrote those books. Did you ever end up keying that young man's car? I did not. Good for you. But I made, never mind, I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> I'm not going to go into it. I'm not going to ask you to go ahead. <sighs> um, so, and that first, so that was self-published. Did you do that on Amazon? No. Okay. So Seth, he um, has self-published a couple, he has self-published like a full-blown novel. And he actually surprised me. Um, it was New Year's Eve 2017 with the cover of Whiskey on Vinyl. And I like, I wanted to do it, but he like jump-started it where he was like, well, I have a cover we're doing this. And I was like, okay. And so we, um, did it through, I think it's Lulu. I think is what it's called. And I just self published it through my website. So I just put up a website and, um, that's how it's like through Shopify, you know, like as cheap as I could possibly do it. Um, and then really through work, the metal was where I got a lot of the, um, attention for it. Cause like we do Facebook lives. So I talked about it. People would come in and like, they knew me and they're like, Oh, this is you. And I was like, yeah, buy it. And then they would buy it. And then, you know, so that's awesome. Yeah. So w- did you start working at work, the metal, like from the beginning of the store or like, have you just over the years become as big of a part of that as you have? Yeah. So work, the metals like 17 years old. A, a lot of people don't know that. Um, I started in 2013 of October and it was like my college job. I was part-time at first did like Christmas stuff and they kept me. And then I became what I am now, which is like the head of the jewelry department. And um, now I've been there almost seven years. So, and they've been a big support of like everything I do. Yeah. So they're like a small boutique store. So let's give them a shout out. Yes. Shout out to work the metal 1201 story Avenue buy the jewelry because that's what I'm head of. Yep. We'll buy anything because it's a really great store. It's a really positive store too and it's huge. That's really cool. Yeah. So after you wrote Whiskey on Vinyl, um, did you already have your second book ready to go or was there a transitionary period there? Um, No. So whenever I was writing Whiskey on Vinyl, I actually had poetry that I put in Arrows on Monsters because it was pretty much the two books by themselves. Like what the poetry in both the books was one book at one point. And then it was like, you know, I have a lot about love and not key in a car. And I have a lot about mental health. Let's separate them because maybe someone would rather read about not keying a car rather than they would mental health. And so we did them separate, but they release at the same time. So essentially I wrote whiskey on vinyl first and then Arrows on Monsters came out of Whiskey on Vinyl, mm. and then we published them at the same time. Gotcha. Yeah. So those both came out before you had even graduated from college, right? Yes. So 
while you were in school, you were doing a lot of other writing, correct? Right. So what other stuff was going on? What other kind of stuff were you doing? Um, like writing wise? Yeah. So, well, I was a writing major, so I did a lot of rhetoric composition stuff, which is like essay on top of essay on top of essay. And then I was writing essays about literature for my literature classes where I didn't really take very many creative writing classes. Um, so I kind of would just do that on my own where I would be inspired by, you know, Faulkner or Twain and then come out with my own short stories. Um, that was, and I just did that. Like it was like, go to the coffee shop, do homework for a little bit and then take a breather, write something creative, do normal homework, write something creative. And then, um, then whenever I wrote a short story too about, um, so do you know the story Arose for Emily by William Faulkner? Okay. Well, I wrote a short story that is from a, like a mouse's perspective in Emily's house that was like super inspired. It was actually for a class. It was for, I took a class that was only on William Faulkner and they had a class or they had a um, assignment called faux Faulkner where you would try to write like Faulkner. It was only supposed to be like a, like a page. Mine was eight. And I was like, I don't care. Y'all are going to read this eight page short story in like 20 minutes because that's what I'm giving you. And that actually won second place um, at an IUS writing competition, too. And again, it was like fueling this like possibility of like, oh, this is something I'm good at. And it's not that I never got that with singing, but singing just became like a fun spiritual thing for me where writing became like an expressive like I can literally see emotion and I'm very, very proud of what I'm creating and so um, now I'm working on a novel, which is, good Lord, it's a beast. I don't know how people write novels. Like I think they take years to do yeah. it. That's what they- well, yeah, they do. Well, and like then uh, like William Faulkner wrote um, As I Lay Dying in three weeks. And like when my professor told me that, I was like, I'm done. I give up. I'm never going to write this novel, finish it. But Are you familiar with cocaine? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think there was a little bit of that involved. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Probably. Uh, yeah, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to do cocaine to get this novel done. That's okay. I wouldn't encourage you to. Thank you. Uh, so do you want to talk about the novel? What's the novel about? So the novel is, um, it's, it already has a title. The title's cool. Uh, it's called Echoes of Insanity. And it's about this girl who she is uncovering the truth about this kind of social science experiment that went wrong, but there's some underlying things that, that isn't being published to the public. And she's trying to uncover exactly what happens. And it's kind of like a dystopian, but also has utopian, like, you know, utopian aspects of it. Um, but like there are spirits involved cause I'm really into like paranormal stuff. And um, so, yeah, it's very like, and it's all about like self-discovery but also like the world that she lives in is like a United States where there's vending machines with pharmaceutical drugs and everyone has the right to just hit a button and get Xanax or get Lexapro. And so that's kind of the setting that she's living in. And because of this social science experiment that exists. So that sounds interesting. Thank you. All right, guys, we'll get back to Just Friends in just a second. But I couldn't possibly sit here and have this conversation with Hannah and not squeeze in a quick ad for her cousin, slash brother, depending on who you're talking to, the handsome and talented Mr. Seth Jones. Seth is a local artist, and I met him around the same time that I met Hannah. The first thing of his that I saw was his comic strip, Ragamuffin, which I immediately loved, 
And then a few years later, I had the privilege of going to one of his art shows at Old 502 Winery for his Angels and Souls series. Massive angels. I wish I could describe them to you, but honestly, you should just check out his Facebook page or his Instagram page. Seth A. Jones on Instagram, all lowercase. And then his Facebook is actually a little tough. It's capital S period space, capital A period space Jones. And you'll also get to check out his newest fine art series, Animalia. Now, when I first saw the orangutan piece, I was blown away by it. And then the elephant piece, crazy. And right now, Seth has a Kickstarter going. So if what you see on his Instagram page and on his Facebook page speaks to you, you can actually purchase some of these pieces of art. One of you guys out there listening definitely needs a painting for like your hallway or like maybe your master bedroom. Maybe you got like a cabin and like you just really need a big picture of a bison on the side of a log just like hanging somewhere in this cabin. I'm telling you guys, check out the Kickstarter. There's something on there that you need. Capital S period space, capital A period space, Jones on Facebook, and Seth A. Jones, all lowercase on Instagram. Check that stuff out. If you're already there, you definitely should be able to see links directly to the Kickstarter, so look around. There's an awesome giraffe print on there that I'm about to buy like right now because I think there's only one left. It's beautiful, it's affordable, and you can support an awesome dude and a contributing member to the Just Friends community. So make sure you check out his Facebook page. Make sure you check out that Instagram page and show the boy some love. All right, guys, that's that. Let's get back to the show. So what types of books do you like to read? And has that list of books been influenced much by the degree that you chose, the literature, literature degree that you chose. Yes, for sure. So I love American literature. Um, I love Twain Faulkner. Um, I love Hemingway. Well, I don't want to say I love Hemingway, but I love Hemingway. I can appreciate Hemingway. I think is more, but um, I love like Toni Morrison, that kind of stuff. Like American writers for sure, but I like it when I'm inspired. Like I'll start reading something, I'm like I'm not inspired by this, so I don't really want to finish it. Um, but I love, I mean, I was like your average, you know, 2013 graduate where like Hunger Games was everything. And now it's, you know, all about like The Handmaid's Tale and stuff like that. And I like reading like dystopia. I like novels that make you think and kind of view the world differently is kind of what I lean towards. And, um, yeah, my degree definitely, because I probably would still be reading like young adult novels at 25. I wouldn't be mad at you. There's some good young adult <laughs> there novels. Are, there are. So what is the book that you've read most recently? Um, That's sad because I don't... Oh, well, I reread The Handmaid's Tale, actually, because I wanted to read her second book, which is I'm in the middle of it right now. Um, What is it called? I don't know. I have it. I should know what that called. novel's called. I own A Handmaid's Tale, but I haven't read it. It's very... um. Don't watch. Have you watched the show? I've not watched the show. Okay, don't watch I, the show. Don't watch the show. Read the book. Read the book because it's hard to. They took the concept of the book and turned it into a full blown show, and that's not really what. That's not the goodness of the book. Like the goodness of the book is kind of the concept of it and the way it's written, and then the show just took that idea and like threw it out on the screen. You don't like Hemingway. You have you read much Bukowski? Yes. Are you familiar with Bukowski? Yes. Yeah. What do you? How do you feel about his stuff? Um, 
Well, you know, Bukowski said that there's no point in learning how to write poetry because you can literally <laughs> throw a sentence out there and that's poem. So I like Bukowski. I think he he attacks a lot of things from a unique perspective. He attacks a lot of things from the perspective of a maniac. Yes. Who, yeah, who's just trying to live life in this hyper crazed way with yeah. drugs and sex and wildness and fun. Uh, very similar, I think, to Hemingway in a lot of ways. Yes. And also very similar to... Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson. Yes, yes. They're yeah. very... Yeah. That like crazy, just like hyper-masculine, yeah, well, lots of drugs. Yeah, well, the cool thing about Hunter S. Thompson is, you know, Rolling Stones came out and was like, he writes the most accurate but unbelievable essays, which if you think about that, like very accurate but also hard to process. And also not believable because a lot of it was made up well, well like his essay essays though oh, okay yeah yeah. like i know like his derby piece like a lot of people were like this is nuts and it's hard to believe but it's happening yeah <laughs> so yeah so you're working on echoes of insanity yes i imagine that's like the big thing that that's like in your focus now yeah but you're not just focusing on writing anymore right you've kind of got a new interest like aren't you planning on pursuing education in some type of capacity yeah then covid kind of happens yeah and then well the, the thing is it's hard because i would as much as i love writing the concept of teaching it makes me not love it you know like i <laughs> i became like i was a i did an internship and i was pretty much like a writing professor's assistant and that was i just was like man this is kind of boring like i'm not I don't know. And we were reading like Hunter S. Thompson and Bukowski. So like we were reading really interesting pieces, but I just wasn't feeling it. And the sad thing is I would love to get like my doctorate in literature, like would love to get that. But when you have professors who are doctors of literature say, don't get your degree in literature, (laughs) it makes you go, okay. So I don't really know what I'm doing and I'm okay with that. I think that's, I was always such a planned person and just over the years, it's been like, no, it's okay that you don't know what you like. It's okay if your five-year plan's a question mark. Like, it's fine. So I love education. I'm so into it. I think it's really important. Um, but I don't know, you know. Well, I did it for five years, and it's very challenging. But yeah. I'm with you on that level of importance. But you kind of brought up something interesting that we could talk about, which I'm sure is on everybody's mind right now, which is COVID. And this crazy situation that it has created, this we living in a time that I already think is just ripe with uncertainty. And like you were just talking about planning, like for for what? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Anything could possibly happen. And now we also have the Internet, which is simultaneously awesome because we have like access to all information but so much of it is bad and and telling what's bad and what's good is so hard. Yeah. What's well, like fake news? Like I'm like what is like it's like faux fake news at this point. I'm like I don't know what is real, what's not. Like if it says fake news, does that mean it's fake? And then you have something like COVID where it's essentially like people are dying from it. Like it's not just something of, oh, you know, if this happens and like, we're going to all paint the streets red, like, no, like people are dying from this. So it makes it hard to, I mean, talk about, like, I know that pharmaceuticals for like anxiety and depression have hit like an all time high and I get it. Like, so of alcohol sales. Too. Yeah, exactly. So it's scary. Yeah. And people, 
people are they are reacting to the instability of the situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah. And then also the crazy thing about it is while we're simultaneously getting bad information just from regular old people, we're also getting really crappy information for people that we're supposed to be able to trust. And like there's not there's been so many instances where we've been lied to. Yeah. As a country right. by people who are like the dudes who are in charge. Right. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so the one big thing that people used to be able to bet on was like the stability of the U.S. economy and mm-hmm. the U.S. government. And right. now it's just kind of like, well, those things. Yeah. I think what you said, though, it's it's more it's just the uncertainty. Like, it's just knowing that nothing has a time limit, you mm-hmm. know. And like, I remember one time I was like, I just wish that they could tell us like when this is going to be over. And my friend was like, okay, Karen. Like, I was like, oh, I just had a Karen moment. Like, I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's crazy. And, like, I feel bad because I, like, people that just graduated, like, high school, I'm like, what do you all have to look forward to? You know, like, me who graduated college, like, I already had a good job and set and everything. But, you know, but, like, looking at education further on, I'm like, am I ready to take all online classes? Am I ready to wear a mask 24? You know, I wear a mask every day for work. And it's like, do I want to sit in a class and like look at my professor wearing a mask or, you know, it's just, yeah. And also will that degree have any value in right. future America? Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, I highly value degrees in the, like the humanities. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I very highly high value those degrees. And I have a degree in social sciences, which was good for me and I learned a lot and I grew a whole lot, but I don't have a whole lot of faith currently in the academics of the social sciences. I worry about them. There's a lot of crazy stuff coming out of those institutions right now um, that I'm just not sure, kind of like what you were saying earlier, is it trustworthy? Is right. is it worth listening to and, and, and taking on as part of my ideology or is it fake news? Yeah. And it's so weird as a young person, and you have to be experiencing this too, where you're like, Feeling like you're supposed to be entering into what was for our parents like the prime earning years of their life. But for me, and I think about myself, I think I'm a smart person, but with my degree and like with what I'm capable of, the types of jobs I'm capable of getting, like it's with COVID especially, it's uncertain. Mm-hmm. And I have right. a buddy who has a, a engineering degree yeah, who's really, really worried about losing his job because of COVID. It's, yeah. It's I mean, wild. it's... Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, there's not even the worst thing is like there's no textbook on how to handle these emotions, too. You know, like, again, everyone go to therapy for sure. But it's like there was no you know, we didn't take like in home ec. Well, when there's a pandemic, here's how you handle those emotions like that was not a thing. So now you just have everyone kind of like running around just figuring out what they're supposed to believe, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to plan for their future. And again, like, you know, there is no textbook on life and there really isn't a textbook on pandemics. And so that's why we're just in this position of what is going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen in six months, you know? So I, it's, it's nuts. And then also, and I don't know how much you've noticed this, but did you see there for a couple of weeks on social media, like after people had been cooped up for a really long time, how extremely, extremely toxic people became online. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, no, well, I mean, they no one else is listening to them except their keyboards. So, you know, it's just when 
people don't get to get out and socialize. I think that's the biggest thing that we're learning is like how important socialization, like face to face contact is and how important it is to get out of the house. And that's coming from an introvert uh-huh. who gladly loves her house. So <laughs> I'm just like, yes, everyone go. Cause I still was going into work cause we were doing online stuff. So I was at least able to leave and to see other things where like my mom, who my mom is an extrovert. Like we are complete polar opposites you know like she loves to socialize well she had to work from home and i would get home from work and she's like let's go out for a drive i'm like let's just not talk like (laughs) let's just sit here but yeah it's because there was nowhere like who are they going to call there's no one to see there's no one to talk to so they're going to talk to facebook they're going to talk to instagram and you know start putting out their emotions and essentially it was like i think facebook's become new therapy You know, like you put stuff out there and you want people to be validating back and saying it's okay or, oh, yes, I agree. And the reality is, like, that's not what it's there for. See, I worry that it it being less like therapy and more like drugs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I worry that, okay, so this is is my mindset. Like, human beings, we used to work in small groups with each other. Mm -hmm. And pretty much everybody had a goal and a purpose because there wasn't a whole lot of you all working together. We weren't living in huge cities like we are now. And you would go out and you would do something. And usually if that something went well, it might benefit yourself and the rest of the people you were working with. Mm -hmm. So you'd bring that news back and everybody would be like, awesome job. And you'd feel great because you just contributed to everybody's life. And you'd get pumped with all this serotonin and dopamine that would make you feel awesome because you just did something that helped the group. Now you can get that by like posting your booty online. Or like making an interesting comment on Twitter or something like that. And you can get thousands and thousands of people validating you and flooding your brain with those good feeling chemicals. And I worry that especially young people, I saw it a lot in my classrooms, that they're addicted, like legitimately addicted to social media. And, you know, you were just talking about like skyrocketing sales of anxiety and depression medication during COVID, but... I kind of see that trend already happening in young people. Right. Even without COVID. Yeah. I think I remember um, when I first went to my psychiatrist, she was like, you know, now because she's pretty much said, like, now we diagnose these disorders at the youngest age of 10. So she was like, honestly, if you would have come in here, probably not back then, but now and said, like, these are the emotions that you had. She's like, we probably would have put you on something. And she's like, but that's because of all the emotions that you're just telling me about. Where I think now that's the stigma of mental health is I feel like we just gladly prescribe everyone with everything. And I think that and that's why I'm such a big person on therapy, because sometimes people don't like I said, those emotions are natural. And so it's sometimes it's easy to just say, okay, well, you're feeling nervous. Well, here's some medicine and we'll just let's move on. Where sometimes that person doesn't necessarily need medicine. It could be that they don't have a serotonin imbalance. It could be just that their mindset, their internal dialogue, they don't know how to think those things properly. They don't know how to calm themselves down. Go to a therapist. She's going to teach you that or he's going to teach you that. And that's the problem that I feel like we're seeing is like I have a lot of friends who are on medication. And like I remember when I was, you know, before I would tell people like my story and they're like, oh, you're not on anything. And I was like, no, I'm not because I my therapist never thought that I was at that point. And she would talk to me about how to settle down, you know, how to have a positive internal dialogue that was effective. And I don't think we teach kids that that's not 
you know, again, that's not in home ec. And so now it's just like, well, here's a prescription, here's a prescription, here's a prescription. And no one's getting the real one-on-one help with how to process emotions positively or effectively. It's just medication. Yeah, I've seen that. I think... So uh, this is this is going to be tough to talk about because I could get myself in trouble with some of the things I could say. Okay. But like um, I consider myself to be very sensitive, especially towards people who have and are suffering from mental illness. Because mm-hmm. I've been there and I know how much it sucks and I know how hard it is to change and I know how difficult it is to to take a like a fierce and true moral inventory of yourself and to say these are the things I'm doing wrong. And these are the things that I need to change about myself. That's so, so hard to do. But the truth about anxiety and depression is that's where you have to start. You have to start. And, you know, and if you if you absolutely can't, maybe that's where medication comes in early on to help you get to a place where you can. But ultimately, if you really want to combat that, it takes personal ownership. And that's something that I think I see people trying to shirk yes. in a lot of areas of their life and myself included. I right, mean, I'm yeah, still no. chubby. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm still a detriment to the healthcare system in our society because I refuse to change. So, I mean, like take this with a grain of salt. I'm a hypocrite. Right. But if you don't take ownership of the thoughts you're thinking, the situations you're putting yourself in, the amount of activity that you are producing. I mean, like there, we know of ways to create those good feeling chemicals in our brains in a, in a natural way that's good for us. If you're not doing all those things first, check yourself. If you're doing all those things and it's still not working for you, if you're doing those things and you're checking those things off and you're still bummed out, I totally understand medication. But in a lot of ways, like people don't want to take that personal ownership when we see it manifested on social media with people being super mean to each other on social media Whereas if you were there in person and you had to take ownership of those words, you're not going to use the the words that you might use when you're 30 miles away hidden behind a screen. And so I also see that happening in the lives of young people where my students would never, they would not come to me with the skills to really handle a lot of their big challenges because they weren't seeing their parents right. ex- exhibit that type of behavior, the type of behavior life, like self-care. Are you taking time to sit down and, and meditate? Are mm-hmm. you thinking about how you're feeling? Right. When you're offended, do you blow up? Or do you take some moment to try to really comprehend how you feel? Mm-hmm. And I had so many kids that would come to me who couldn't even tell me how they felt. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. That's what therapy does. Right. Exactly. And I, that's what I think. I always say like for therapy, because I have friends who they have kids who are young, like five and six, and they take them to therapy because they like as a parent, they feel like they're doing everything to like help them understand their emotions. And like, they just don't get it. And the reality is that we expect parents to teach those things. And a hundred percent, like I grew up tough love. Like that was how my whole childhood was. And it was wonderful. It was exactly what I needed. It's helped me to this day. But I think too, when it comes to like parenting, you know, parents aren't perfect. And I think that's where I wish that there was a stigma or like it wasn't a stigma towards like teachers seeing kids and being like, 
they need therapy. Like, I wish there was therapies in schools, I guess is kind of what I'm trying to say. Like, I wish there was just some sense of training of emotions because a lot of kids aren't getting it at home. And that's the sad part. Like, that's, you know, because I was a spoiled brat growing up, so I don't know what that's like. But I can only imagine, I mean... I can only imagine what that's like to not have that constructive criticism or that constructive um, just teachings at the house. And I think that's why, like, I wish therapy was in schools. I wish that because we have like youth service centers and I think they're very helpful. But the reality is, like, they also have to worry about events and everything else. And they're not trained for like psychiatry or, um, you know, marriage and family therapy. So I wish that that could one day be a thing where, you know, if you have a student who lashes out, it's like, okay, we're going to call therapist blah 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 and you're gonna let's just go in there and chill out she'll help you but then the the bad thing about that is then there's gonna be oh that kid was thrown into the therapist's office because they had a bad day you know like there's Mm -hmm. gonna be a stereotype and bullying of that yeah so it's just hard it is it's all hard and it's all very subtle we we had um, a healthcare professional at the last school that i worked with there was one young lady and she was the only healthcare professional in a school of I think 900 kids and then she had a caseload of I think about like 30 kids but the truth is is that every single kid in that building could have benefited from having a good therapist who was going to listen to them and then give them good advice about how to handle their situations I mean that's all a kid needs right yeah 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 uh I don't know it's it's challenging there's so many things about the world that we live in now that I was talking to my friend Jake recently and he said that he thinks we've gotten to a place where all the problems that had kind of simple answers, we've answered them. He's like, it may not have been the best answer that we came up with and we might even be suffering some, some of the consequences of those things, but we did our best to answer them. And now we are just, we, we've gotten down to the point where it's like all the things that need to change now are so subtle that it's so hard to even identify what the problem is. So we just get caught up arguing about what the problem is in the first place before we could even, so we never have the chance to even talk about what to do about it. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, that kind of brings us to where we're at now where we're seeing um, especially in our city, we're seeing lots of people who are out demonstrating. Those demonstrating those demonstrations are manifesting themselves in extremely positive ways and in ways that I hope do um, result in meaningful change that will benefit, I think, everybody involved. But then we also see some individuals who I think feel so disenfranchised and feel so unrepresented that they're kind of raging against the machine. Right, yeah. And then that is causing lots of people a lot of anxiety. Yes, And making them feel unsafe. And so now all of a sudden we have this polarization, this opposition that we see happening so much, Mm -hmm. especially on social media. Right. And I don't know, how are, how are you feeling personally about everything that's been happening in our city? Um, for me, it's been, you know, when it all first started, I was, I, I think I'm, I'm all for the change. I think it is scary to think about where this could lead us down the road, especially cause like I work for someone local 
So it's hard for me sometimes to put into perspective like the corporate aspect of things and like the big picture because I'm just like, well, I work local. I work local. And, you know, for me, anxiety wise, it's been okay because I work downtown. I mean, it's not criminally considered downtown, but it's close enough to where I've had people ask, like, is it are you safe? Do you feel safe? Like, I feel totally fine. And I never am like really afraid at all when I go into work or anything like that. Um, I think it's necessary. I think it's good. But I think you like said it perfectly that people who do feel like extremely oppressed are using this as a gateway to just be. I don't want to use the word violent because I don't think that it necessarily is violent more than it's just um, kind of in big ways. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Well, if that some makes sense. some people are being violent. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate. It's. It's it's to be expected that if you're going to have groups of people participating in something, some of those people are going to suck. Right. And, and you know what I mean? Because like, yeah. some people suck. Yeah. And then in situations like this where you're having large demonstrations that are taking place outside and there is really no gatekeeping taking place and mm-hmm. anybody who would like to participate can and, in fact, yeah. would be encouraged to, sometimes you're going to get people who go out and – engage in a way that is not constructive right and that's that's unfortunate but i i don't know i've been i've been doing this thing recently because i consider myself pretty progressive but i have a lot of friends who are very conservative and i've seen the divisiveness online and i don't like it and i've seen my conservative friends say mean things about my liberal friends which really hurts my feelings and then I see my liberal friends say mean things about my conservative friends. And then sometimes my knee-jerk reaction is maybe even to be amused. <laughs> yeah. But at the, end, at the end of the day, I'm like, that actually was very wrong and very mean. Yeah. And that person who said that thing, which maybe was perceived as ignorant, is actually someone I know to be a kind person. Yeah. And, and like a genuinely compassionate person. Mm-hmm. So. I don't it, – it, it, the challenge is, is that all of this stuff is so difficult to talk about mm-hmm. because it's so easy to say something that might piss somebody right. off. Right. Yeah, for sure. And that's kind of where I've – like if I say anything, I'm always like extremely like conscious of how I say it because I don't want to offend anyone. Like I believe in the good change and at the same time like there are moments where, like people are viol- – you know, where it's just – it's hard to – I personally just feel like it's hard to discuss in a way that it's like you're kind of you can't win, you can't lose, you know, it's kind of how I feel. And that's where I just have kind of been like kind of on the back. But then I'm like, is that bad that I'm not like on top of it? Like, am I helping the issue or am I not helping the issue? Like we're that's kind of where my mindset's been. It's kind of really been all over the place. And only thing that makes me kind of feel comfortable is I have other people around me who are kind of the same way where we're just like, we want to help and we think it's good at the same time. It's gone a little too far, but are we bad for saying that? You know, I think it's just kind of a test of just where you're comfortable. Yeah. Some people's behavior has been inappropriate. Yeah. But you know, I have my buddy Daryl on and he's a community organizer and he's been really involved with some of the demonstrations that have taken place downtown and he's a really super smart guy. And you know, he's, he even said to himself, there are people down there who are behaving in ways that I would encourage them not to do that. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to let that distract me yes. from my goal of trying to encourage and incentivize meaningful change in the way that we, one, just police everybody, but also specifically police people of color. Because I think there's an obvious difference between the way that our system 
treats minorities and people of color. And you can see that in the outcome. I read somewhere that you can tell what a system is designed to do by putting that system into motion and observing what it does. Because the outcome of that system, what it creates is exactly what that current system is best designed to do. It might not have been intentionally designed to do that, but that's what it does best. Yeah. And something about our criminal justice system does a really, really good job of prosecuting nonviolent drug offenders who are primarily people of low income and therefore primarily black based off of some of the um, just the unfair systems that are in place in our country now that lead to a large number of minority people being living below the poverty line. And also we see a lot of people of color and minorities being mistreated by police officers. I don't think that's what the system is designed to do, but it's happening and we need to do something about it. And so that that really should be, I think, the focus. Yeah. But I totally understand how maybe I'm just going to throw a group out there. I'm sorry for using them as scapegoats, goats, but older white people might be more frightened by the violence that they're seeing take place and get distracted from this message because at the end of the day, that act, that message doesn't really actually impact them very much. So I feel like I'm a person who tries to put the needs of others first when I think about my political policy, but I don't know if I blame someone for not doing that. Yeah. Does that seem fair? Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I have a, like a lot of my professors were more liberal. So, and you know, for me, I was pretty much like pretty conservative, pretty in the middle um, for the most part. And I think, you know, college, like there's a stereotype that college makes everybody liberals, but it was also just hearing them, you know, discuss things like you said, putting other people ahead of you when it comes to voting and when it comes to ideas. And I think that was kind of my like moment of like, Oh, I shouldn't just vote thinking of myself. And granted I was like 18, you know, so I think that's been the biggest thing is just we're now because we live in such a selfish world where it's like, well, if this doesn't benefit me, then why do I care? And it's like we need to be more um, considering of everyone and considering of everyone's situations when we make decisions like that, when we put in policies, when we think about who we're going to vote for, what we're going to believe in and stuff. And I think that's been the biggest kind of shift now is like I'm seeing more of my friends specifically be more mindful and not just thinking like oh well yes I'm gonna be fine but like how are other people gonna be and I think that's been like a very refreshing thing that's come out of this more than anything um is just people not being selfish and I think that's the one thing that like I'm grateful for like my generation because I think we are thinking ahead and we are thinking about the future and others so for that, it's like, okay, well, there's maybe a little, you know, a little good that's coming out of this. So, so, and that kind of once leads me in the direction of, of a conversation that I would like to have with you, but might be challenging to have with you. So bear okay. with me in this one. So like <laughs> okay. you say that your, your, the way that you choose to vote is very influenced by your desire to do what's best for others, mm-hmm. for yourself, but also for others. Yes. That value to serve, mm-hmm. where do you think that that comes from for you? Um, well, 
I mean, I grew up like I grew up in church uh-huh. and my mom and dad always would help other people. Like that was just what we did. Um, I mean, I remember like going out of our ways to do good for other people kind of thing. Um, and I think that's where it just came from. Like it, you know, it's selfish. Like it feels good to help other people, but it does. And it feels like something I need to do is to serve others and be there for others. And it does come, you know, from the religion of Christianity, which is helping others and, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, you know, helping those that are unfor- like less fortunate than you and just being a light to other people, I think is where this idea of serving has come from. I think, was it you and I, were you there when we went to the homeless shelter and fed them burritos? Yeah. Like I think about little, like those are like vivid memories for me. It's just helping other people with Lydia's closet at church. It's helping clothe women. And it's just showing people that light of your situation can be better and I'm going to try my best to show you that without coming across spoiled. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been the biggest hard thing for me is like not be spoiled whenever I, mm-hmm. you know, try to help other people. So I think it just comes from, you know, my upbringing of in the church and helping, but also like you help others, not because you're told to, but one, because it's our role as Christians to help other people, but also because there's something good that comes out of it for yourself and for others, more importantly. See, it's uh, that's what I expected you to say. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you might be surprised to hear this, but that's me too. Yeah. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Right. So as weird as it might sound to say to come from me, knowing what you know about me, mm-hmm. like I feel like my desire to serve and the value that I see in being of service to other people comes from my experience in Christianity and the church and seeing that represented in the people around me and seeing them get such joy out of serving other people. And I do think I do understand where that comes from. Like a a thing that often comes from Christianity that I, that I do believe to be 100% true is that we are communal. Mm -hmm. We are not supposed to, to exist in solidarity. We are, it's almost as easy to talk about humans as a group as it is to talk about a human as an individual. It's almost the same thing. The group is as much of what it means to be human as it is to be an individual human. So I genuinely believe somewhere deep inside of me that if we can lift everybody up, if we can make, uh, if what it means to be a human is a spectrum from the, the, the most needy to the most affluent if we can bring the bottom of that spectrum up we lift everyone up along with it yeah so i don't understand how people don't see how much they would how much they would get from just having the least of us lifted up and made more i think it's just again it's just selfish you know it's it's choosing to not see that too i think is a big part of it it's seeing that you're okay, therefore everything's going to be okay. And I think, and I think a lot of times whenever I would serve people, I would always think like, what if I was them? And like, that's kind of a cheesy answer, but the reality is like, well, what if I had absolutely nothing? Like this $1 bill would mean a lot to me or, you know, this, you know, burrito that I got from a homeless shelter would mean a lot to me. And I think that people, it's hard to put, you know, your, it's hard to put yourself in other people's shoes, but it's so beneficial when you do it. And I think that's where we lose this idea of a society all helping one another and being there for each other is just 
we are programmed to be selfish. I mean, fast food, like we get it when we want it. Our internet doesn't work. It's the end of the world. And the reality is like, there are people that don't have internet. There are people who don't have anything, you know? And so it's just hard to not be just completely absorbed in our current life and not look outside. And I mean, even like I've struggled with that, even after helping people, you know, I'll complain about something. I'm like, seriously, you just, you just helped that person who had nothing. And you're complaining that you can't find a shoe, Uh like get it together. And it's, it's hard, but I think it's more just really, I mean, really opening your eyes up to the world. And I think it's really, hard to do that and it's really hard to accept the bad and it's easy to just like not accept it and act like it's not there when the reality is it's there it's screaming at you you're just you're just being blind to it and you're being blind to it because that's how society has programmed us to be i agree i think we have been taught in some ways to be to expect instant gratification and to be mostly concerned with making sure that we feel good so you said something, you said a couple of things interesting um, when you were just talking, you talked about how, how much you feel like you would value like a burrito or a dollar bill if like it was something you didn't have. I like to watch this show. It's called Alone. And what they do is they take these people who are survivalist experts and they stick them in the woods by themselves. Um, and they have some tools. They're allowed to take 10 things, but they're out there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And they'll catch us like a snail and they'll cry. They're so overcome with appreciation for like this. They'll catch like a score, a chipmunk. Mm-hmm. It's like a nugget. It's like the first <laughs> McNugget that they've had in like three weeks. Right. And they're bawling. They're so appreciative of yeah. it. And it's just so we're so disconnected from what like it really means to be a person because there people used to live that way. People used to scrounge for food. Like it was life or death every second. And I feel like that's what we're wired for. And now we live in this weird, weird world where we can just like press a button on our food and or, uh, press a button on our phone and have like a three course meal delivered to our door. We're so disconnected from what that means. So then I think about that and I think about how, how often I mean, like, I'll eat a meal and I'll feel no gratification for it. It's just like a part of my day. And it's because I'm not paying attention to what I'm actually getting to do. And this brings me to something that we've talked about on the podcast a lot, which is this idea of mindfulness. And it kind of came back to what you were talking about earlier, like seeing the big picture, being aware of everything that's going on all at once. It is really, really, really hard to do. How often... Do you feel, how much of your day do you feel like you spend distracted? Oh, I, I mean, 24 hours, you know, like it's just hard because it's so easy to be like squirrel, like, oh, issue, oh, problem, oh, good, oh, bad, that you just don't. And that's why I love college, because whenever we would read pieces of literature from the past, I knew what the big picture was. I knew what it would lead to. I knew the situation at that time. So whenever we would read it, I could be mindful of everything going on when this novel was written. And I try to be as much as I want to be like that with the world, like watching news. It's like, yes, this is happening, but there's also all this other stuff happening. And I do think about it, how it was with school. And I think 
that even, you know, in my own writing, it's like, cause writing for me, it's selfish. I mean, I'm writing my emotions so I don't key a guy's car. Like that's pretty selfish. So read that. And then also think about how there's kids in Africa starving, how there are people being oppressed. Think about the full big picture, but you're distracted all the time. Do you, but when you're writing, I would imagine that you do feel very mindful when you're writing. I'm very, well, it depends. If I'm writing poetry, I'm only mindful about my emotions. Really? Yes. You're only think of, thinking about what you're feeling in the moment? Yes. But you're paying very, very close attention to that, right? Yes. And you're not letting yourself get distracted from that. Right. right. That's. I think that's a practice on mindfulness. Okay. Um, yeah, I can see what you mean. So like, um, like meditation or even prayer. Lots of people think of prayer. Think about when you're praying, how often will you be in the middle of a prayer and get distracted about what you're even talking about? Right. So the the practice of not letting yourself get distracted is a practice in mindfulness. And what I noticed in my mindfulness practice, which is not something that I do nearly as much as I should, I talk about it more often than I do it, but I've, I've benefited from it. I have. And I felt myself not get better at not getting distracted. But getting better at realizing, shit, I'm distracted. I was supposed to be thinking about this, and I've been thinking about breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, I need to start thinking about this. Right. And just getting better at quickly realizing, okay, I've let myself wander and bringing myself back to that. Yeah. And I've benefited from that so much because, like, even just in spending time with my family, I've there's been times when I've spent four hours in the same room as my mom and dad and then left and missed my parents because I felt like I never see them because I didn't make any good use of the time that I was in the room with them. I was distracted the whole time. I wasn't benefiting from it. And now that I'm 30, I worry about the rest of my life just slipping away. Yeah. I mean, at least you're 30 and realizing that though. I mean, you know, it's better than being 80 and be like, oh, mom, you know. But um, I think it is to just, you know, well, and that's the thing. It's like, how many times were you with your family and the TV was on? Yeah. How many times, you know, did you have music going? Or, and I think that's the biggest thing, like, that is the distraction. Or how many times did you look at your phone? You know, I think technology is the biggest distraction. Same as, you know, if someone's meditating or praying, it's easy to be like, be in the middle of a prayer or a meditation, your phone going off. Oh, text. Romp, there we go. So I think technology is a big reason why like we don't meditate. We don't we aren't we aren't mindful of things because the entire world is in our pocket. The entire world's on that screen. And I think that's where, you know, I love um, growing up. Like I would have older people tell me they love Thanksgiving. I thought that was the dumbest thing in the world. Like, yeah, the food's good, but like there's no gifts. There's no <laughs> excitement. And now that I'm older, like I totally get it because we don't have the TV on. We all sit around the table. We talk. We laugh. Um, someone gets in an argument, like it's just, we're there. And like, is the food a distraction? Yes. But also we're acknowledging who prepared the food. And I think we need to kind of be that way with life. Like we're sitting here and we're all in this room. Let's acknowledge the fact that we're here and not acknowledge the fact that there's the TV right there. It's not on, but it's there. I have the remote or, Oh, my phone just rang, but I'm not going to look at it because we're in this room with each other. And I think that's why, it's so hard to be, you know, mindful because there are so many distractions. That's mm. what the world's filled with. Yeah. And I think what you kind of just described there is what like life used to look like much, much more often. Yeah. You're constantly surrounded by your friends and family. A lot of them probably live in the same structure that you do or yeah. very, very close to you. And you're always 
cutting up with them and joking with them and interacting with them because the best way to distract yourself was to interact with your loved ones. And now something about our culture, we've become such isolationists. Every, and it's I think it's because we're, we're capable of being that way. Yeah. Like I could theoretically live by myself in this house and through the interaction that I have with people, which is my job, which right now, I wouldn't need to see anybody. <laughs> right, yeah. And I'd be totally fine. Yeah. It's weird. It is. How much of that sense of community that you get comes from the life song? It's a lot of it. I mean, even because, you know, I took, um, so I was singing the life song pretty much from the beginning of it. And then I left like two years ago. And I really left because I was just spiritually exhausted. And, but even when I left, I would still see people from the life song, you know, like I would either choose to call them and talk to them. I would either, you know, cause I didn't really physically go to the life song for like two years. Um, but I would always make sure I saw them and I talked to them. And that's to me is like the essence of community is even still them still being there technically with you, but you're not physically in their presence. And so a lot of it does come from the life song. Um, and even, looking back at like, cause I was there from the beginning. So I can pretty much like the waves of different people and stuff. I think that now it's almost more like at a consistent community, a consistent thriving, like spiritual place. And for that reason, like a lot of it now that I'm older, um, I choose to go there. It's not that my dad's the pastor and I have to go, like I choose to go. And for that reason, I choose to have that community. I choose to have those friends and, um, so a lot of the community comes from the life song. It also comes from work. Like I have a really great work community um, of women and men who really do like lift me up and I lift them up. Um, Cause I don't, I don't talk to my high school friends. Like I know you have like a bunch of high school friends. I don't, <laughs> and I'm, I'm okay with that. Like that doesn't like upset me or anything, but my sense of community comes from the life song church um, work and then just like little friend groups here and there that I have and family. Family is a big mm-hmm. community too. How important to you is community? How on, on, If you were to rank it in your values, how high would it be? Mm, I mean, it's like an eight. I mean, I feel like it's, it's an important thing. It's def it matters. Um, I think it's been a big reason why like my mental health has thrived since it plummeted essentially. Um, because, I had people who held me accountable. I had people who cared, who would make sure, who would check in on me. Even now as an adult, like if something goes wrong, they're like, are you okay? You know, cause they know what my past looks like. And so, and I think that's what is hard about people who are coming out of like rehabs and are coming out of places of struggle is it's hard to find a community because what the community of Twitter or you know, the community of Instagram, like that's essentially like what people are drawn to when it's really the community of like physically seeing people, physically calling people that's going to help build them. And I'm really, really grateful that I've had that pretty much since the beginning. I think the, the something that's interesting about community is it, it's, it can't, it's not something that can be created overnight. Right. You have to enter into this group of people with a mindset of what can I contribute Excuse me, because only through your contributions will your imperfections be accepted. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So, so like you can't be, you can't expect to come in as a hot mess and not bring something to the table. Right. And then also 
if you're going to bring your difficulties to the table, years and years of people benefiting from the good that you bring to that mm-hmm. community really makes it easier to uh, look past those things about a person's uh, personality that might not be the most ideal. Yeah. And you get that through years and years of loving and investing on one another, mm-hmm. investing in one another. And it's challenging to have that right away. Yeah. So that's why when people, when I tell people now, like, what are you doing this Sunday? And I say, I'm going to church. Mm-hmm. They're like, why? <laughs> right. Why? Yeah. Why are you going there? I'm like, because it's a super valuable thing in my life. And there's yeah. a bunch of people there whom I really appreciate and who I can invest in and they can invest in me and they bring a lot of value to me. And mm-hmm. people don't understand that. And I'm like, you don't need to. Right. Really, it's fine if you don't. But uh, that's there for me. So, you know, one of the things that I hope people get from this podcast mm-hmm. is they get a chance to feel like they're a part of a community. Yeah. And... You know, as much as I love a digital community, as fantastic as I think something online is, yeah. I, it's it it cannot replace a physical, in-person group of people that you actually engage with mm-hmm. one-on-one and who invest in you and you invest in them. Yeah. So if there are people out there that don't have that, I would encourage them to go find that. And if one of the places that they feel like they could get plugged in like that is a church – that's one of the greatest places to go and get connected mm-hmm. to a community of people. Yeah. Because you can um, you can almost um, certainly expect to be met with people with integrity and who are going to be kind to you and accepting of you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then if you're not, well, maybe you should just try to look someplace else. But you, yeah. got, you got unlucky. Uh, yeah. That sucks. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the hard thing, too, with you know, again, the stereotype of church, it's just a bunch of hypocrites. That's, you know, essentially what... Well, that's 100% what it is. Well, but, but that's everybody, right, though. Right, Well, but that's also... I think it's more... Yes, churches, you know, are full of people who say don't do stuff who do that because mm-hmm. they're human beings. Mm-hmm. I think it's more people... There's a stereotype that they don't... That, like, churches don't acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest kind of misconception. And I think, too, there's a power of when you go into a setting of church of community, you know, I believe in the power of the reason why those people are there. It's not necessary. It's not just to have a community. There's, there's something a lot bigger that is the umbrella over it. And that is, you know, the concept of Christianity, of spirituality, of um, this being who created this community. And um, I think that's why like church has always been a good place for like lost people is because that's what it's there for. It is there for people, but you're going to get more out of it. If it's done correctly, you're going to get more out of it than just being like, Oh, I have a couple friends at this place. I have right. a community. There's an, eth- there's something a lot bigger that is the reason why it exists the way that it exists. And I think just again, like, you know, like I said, church is the, 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 mainstream stereotype is it's a bunch of hypocrites who don't acknowledge that they're hypocrites Mm. who think they're better than everybody. And the reality is that's not how church should be at all, you know, but, um, unfortunately again, a couple of bad apples have ruined Mm -hmm. that whole idea. And that isn't, you know, the case of most I would hope. So you, so you've used a word a couple of times, the word spirituality. Mm -hmm. And obviously you've talked about your faith on here. And so people kind of know where you stand, but you also said that you're really interested in like 
uh, <laughs> ghosts <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. So how do you reconcile that in your mind and where does that come from? Okay, so I so I think it's being I know like millennials, the word spiritual is like thrown around a lot. Like we're all like one with nature and stuff, which I agree. I think it's also for me it's um it's hard. The word religion is scary because you think it's just a bunch of roles where then you have the term spiritual, which it's you know, the Holy Spirit exists. That's how we communicate to God. So it's a sense of you have a spiritual relationship with him where he moves you with emotions and he moves you um, with things that you think and how you perceive the world. I am really into like demonology. I think it's really interesting. And I, I it's like a bucket list thing for me is to like witness an exorcism. I think that we as a society get, which you just talked about this, get so lost in the bad of the world, like the physical bad, the crime, bad politicians, the dirty, you know, bad things, the physical world that we can see that we forget, especially I think as all humans, specifically Christians, forget that like there could be, the Bible says like demons are real, they're fallen angels. There could be a demon sitting right there and God is protecting me from not being, attra- like from that demon not coming over here and taking this pillow. We don't know. We have no idea what the work that God is putting in constantly to keep us safe from demons. And I believe in that 100%. And I think that seeing a demon, like seeing an exorcism, would one be a test of my faith of like, yo, I'm going to sit in this room and I'm going to have faith in God that that demon's not going to come out and then come smack me in the face. Like I have that faith. But also it would be like such a reminder that there are so many unseen things that the Bible talks about of God is protecting us from all the time. And I think that's such a cool thing. And also like when it comes to ghosts, like we don't know how long purgatory is. We have no idea. There is no sense of time in heaven. We're told that. So for one, you know, ghosts could be sitting here or on earth for what for them is nothing. But in our time, it's 300 years. Like we don't know. And so I I like that idea of, the unknown. I think it also just makes God seem so much bigger than what I perceive him to be. So I'm very, I can very much relate with this feeling Mm -hmm. that there is this underlying current of, I don't know if you would want to call it energy. You might call it God or the Holy spirit Mm -hmm. that is definitely there. Mm -hmm. And we just can't interact with it. Most of the time. Right. But but every once in a while we get to. Yeah. So like when I think about spirits, I've heard some people talk about this idea. uh, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's basically kind of just like, um, like have you ever seen someone take a picture of something and then there's just kind of like an overlay of another picture, like really faint in the background? Yeah. They describe it as like some type of weird, like effect of that, like some type of bug in the system or something like that. Um, but I do definitely think that there is something going on that currently cannot be explained in like in scientific methods and stuff like that. And so in the mainstream has just been kind of ignored. And then in um, maybe in like certain like spiritual practices has, has been like kind of identified as like, look, this is this. Look at this. Can you not see that this right. is happening? And so. It's really, really interesting. And then I've had experiences myself that I won't go into detail about describing where time has not has disappeared and where I've experienced things that felt like they were taking a long time to happen, but then only really took about like a small amount of time to happen. 
and uh, there's something happening. Um, I had a conversation with a girl multiple different times, a couple of different conversations with different people who describe themselves as being empaths. Have you ever had an experience like that or do you know anybody who's ever had an experience like that? I don't think I do. No? No. Me either. Okay. (laughs) So she described a situation where, and you can listen to this on the podcast, so for those of you guys listening who are hearing this again, I'm sorry, but she was like, I was in a Walmart Mm -hmm. and I was standing in line, everything was normal, and then all of a sudden I felt like I was having a heart attack. I had a Mm -hmm. tightness and a pain in my chest. I couldn't breathe. Right. And then there was a like a loud noise and like a yell for help. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in the store, somebody was having a heart attack. Yeah. And she was like, I felt it. And I had no reason why I would know. And I looked her in the eyes and I said, my gut reaction is to say that you are a liar. Right. Yeah. Because I've never experienced anything yeah. like that. But so so do you think when you think of like ghosts or apparitions or something mm-hmm. like that, do you, would you... Would your de- explanation for that be like you assume it's a demon or some type of like that, or some type of spiritual being yes. that's here on Earth? Yeah, I think that because um, like again, demons walk the Earth like angels. That's and you know the Bible says that. So it's sometimes it's hard to differentiate between this is a ghost of a woman who died 400 years ago versus this is a demon just messing with you and mm-hmm. just giving you a hard time. Mm-hmm. And that's where. You know, it's kind of up in, like, for me personally, it's up in the air. It's like, it's nicer to believe that it's a ghost of a nice woman who Uh died 400 years ago versus a demon. But I don't know. And I think that's the kind of question thing, like, the ambiguous that I just kind of, like, enjoy not knowing that. But I definitely, um, like, I love ghost adventures. I love stuff like that. Um, I just enjoy it. Which I love Halloween. So, and I think people do look at me and they're like, what? Like you sing at your church and like you want to experience an exorcism. I'm like, yes, I do. And again, that's just a stereotype. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's, um, again, just something hard to like look out past the idea of like what a Christian is, you know, they can be, because the reality is like demonology, like that's like a very Catholicist aspect, Mm -hmm. you know, where like ordained ministers would, they perform exorcisms, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a friend who's, experienced one like it was a demon that was in one woman and she just started screaming uncontrollably and a um a pastor like ran over to her and he was exercising her but before he could bound the demon to hell it shot over to a woman across the street a man across the street and she just he just fell to the ground started screaming and so then the pastor ran out i think it was like cambodia or somewhere okay and he ran over and then he was able to bound the demon to hell, and like the two people were like, "Okay, goodness gracious, <laughs> goodness gracious." It's, I don't know. It's me either. I, yeah, that, I I can definitely appreciate though the feeling of enjoying not having a one hundred percent answer. Yeah, because then it opens up the possibilities for you to like for your imagination to kind of run with yeah. it. And it's fun. Yeah. Uh, but. I've I've heard some people talk about some crazy stuff. I found myself listening to some podcasts of some people who are talking about different energies and yeah. We were talking the other day. You were talking about Mary Curie. Mm-hmm. You had watched a Netflix documentary about her or something yeah, like that. Yeah, the biopic. Yeah, yeah, the it was the Amazon biopic. Yeah. yeah. So she was responsible for kind of discovering that quality of matter that is radioactivity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I haven't watched the biography or whatever it is, but you said you have. 
what kind of what was she doing? What was going on in it exactly? Well, so it's really the the aspect of like the magic part and of the cult aspect wasn't that big in the biopic because it her husband the biopic makes it seem like her husband was really into it because they were using radioactivity to summon the dead and to talk to the dead and so he got into it and it's interesting how the whole time she's like they're misusing radioactivity like this is not what it's made for and like she gets frustrated but then whenever he dies the biopic makes it seem like she became really involved in this cult because she was like I want him I want to like let's use radioactivity and bring him back to life and um and so that was just what we were talking about was how one I thought it was really interesting the way the biopic discussed radioactivity like how would you feel if you discovered something that was helping cure cancer but also like killed a lot of people <laughs> like what would your emotions be about that and it kind of does a really good job of like making you think in that way um i mean i was like crying at the end of it because i was like what have i created radio like what would i do um but it's really interesting how you know she was able to create it and there was a lot i mean you talk about in the public's eye like she was looked down upon because she had an affair with a married man after her husband died and she was um, polish and that was a big no-no at the time you know so it was really interesting and just seeing how you know i'm really into um like women empowerment and women who have done so many great things in history and it was really interesting seeing her because you hear about her but like i didn't know anything about her other than you know radioactivity and then you hear radioactivity and you think it's Chernobyl. so there wasn't really a positive for me but it was really cool seeing her and um how at first she was like they're using radioactivity for the wrong reason and then it was like summon him back here's all the yeah. radioactivity you know or the radium you need so well, that's really a, cool. That's a weird thing that I found myself getting interested in because I discovered this podcast a long time ago called Unexplained. Mm -hmm. And he would tell these stories about crazy things that had happened. You would actually probably really dig it. He talks a yeah, lot about would. ghosts and hauntings. Mm -hmm. But he also talks about this dude often named Alistair Crowley who mm -hmm. was like this British aristocrat who was very, very wealthy and he was really involved in sciences and then he was uh, really involved with a lot of British, but also American scientists mm -hmm. who were actively seeking out answers like using physics or using chemistry or I'm not exactly sure. I think she was a chemist, right? Yes. And he was seeking like answers in the occult, but he wanted to try to use science in that way. And he had a buttload of money. So he was yeah, funding he all of yeah. these different scientists. And then they were participating in his crazy magic ceremonies and stuff like oh, that. Oh, cool, yeah. So he would be hanging out at his estate with, like, Mary Curie and her husband and mm -hmm. then, like, Werner Von Braun and some of these people who were involved in NASA and, like, the rocket industry. Mm -hmm. And then, so, like, he got some famous physicists, some famous chemists, some yeah. famous rocket scientists. And then they're all, like, mixing their crafts to make all these amazing scientific discoveries while they were simultaneously trying to summon demons and then also performing sex magic, which is, I imagine, what Mary Curie was doing when she cheated on her husband or she had an affair with her husband with a married man. I don't know. The the biopic, again, all I know about Mary Curie came from that biopic. Mm -hmm. So if I'm wrong, it's fine. But it just made it, I mean, it made it seem more like she was lonely and he was there. <laughs> there wasn't any, that was just kind of the way it made it and seem. And they were also trying to cast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was who knows, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's really interesting. Um, so is there anything else that you would like want to talk about? Do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, you should, we've talked about your books. You should talk, yeah. let people know where they can get them. 
So you can get them at hannahjamesbooks.com. Uh, it's Whiskey on Vinyl, Arrows on Monsters. Um, they're $9.99 a piece, or you can buy both of them together for $16. Uh, what a deal. I know. And they're a little pocket size. Like, you can throw them in your pocket. You can throw them in your purse. That was kind of my plan. It was, like, poetry on the go. Um, so, yeah, that was that's something I'm really proud of, and... Hopefully, Echoes of Insanity will be published in a larger scale <laughs> awesome. at some point. Awesome. Once, one day once it's finished. Yes. All right. When you I'm have, old. What about anything else? Do you have Facebook pages or things you want to yeah. plug? Uh, so my Instagram's just Hannah XO James. That's my handle. Um, my middle name's James. So it's just Hannah XO James. And I always, I'm pretty active on Instagram. I work very hard on, again, because I'm a millennial. So my Instagram's really pretty, you know. I'm a millennial and mine's not. Oh, well. But I'm barely there. I'm like <laughs> so, right on the edge. Well, it could be because I'm a girl too. I think that's a big Maybe. part of it. But. Although, man, I have this buddy who the last thing you would expect to him is for him to have a beautiful Instagram. And it is. Oh, my God. It's gorgeous. Mm. It's just pictures of flowers that he grows. Oh. He's like a very masculine man too. Yeah. Uh, Good for him. Yeah. 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 That's pretty cool. Well, Hannah, we've got what is going to be an amazing podcast, I'm sure. Okay. Thank you so much yeah. for coming over and well, doing this. thank you for having me. It was fun. Tell Seth how much fun you had. I will. Awesome. I'll get him in here. I'd love to have him on here. I want to plug ragamuffins. I want to talk yeah. about all the stuff that he does. So yeah. I think people appreciate it. Yeah, I'll work on that for sure. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> All right, there it is, guys. Another podcast in the books. What a fun conversation that we had the privilege of having with Miss Hannah. She is lovely. She is fun. I really hope I get the chance to talk with her again sometime. As I said, be sure to check out her stuff. Hannah XO James on Instagram. Just Hannah James on Facebook. Check out her stuff. Check out Whiskey on Vinyl. Check out Arrows on Monsters. Show her some love. Let's make that third book possible. Guys, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Google Podcasts or however you're listening, make sure you rate the show. Make sure you leave us a review. And like I said earlier, if your review is particularly entertaining, if you compliment your host, who knows? I might even reach out to you personally about being featured directly on the Just Friends podcast website, justfriendspod.com. Make sure you check it out. You can listen to all the new episodes. You can see the merchandise that's available. And there are links to the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Mitch Makes Podcast. But just check out justfriendspod.com, guys. All the links are there. Everything you need is right there. All one-stop shop for everything Just Friends Podcast. Be sure to check out the Facebook page and the Instagram page, Just Friends Podcast, where you can learn about future episodes and interact with the Just Friends Podcast community. And as always, make sure you're sharing the show with anybody who you think will appreciate it, guys. I always appreciate the shares, and I appreciate you guys who are already listening. Thank you all so much. I can't wait to see you all next week. Until then, take care of yourselves. Be safe. Be kind to one another. I love you all. Bye. <laughs>